This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Welcome everyone uh, to our podcast that is What Comes Next, The Future of Palliative Care. And I am so excited today that we have one of our social work colleagues who has really been a pioneer in palliative social work and in the field. uh, And that is Shirley Otis Green. Shirley has really spent her whole career um, being dedicated to enhancing the delivery of contextualized care to address the symptoms and the stress of serious illness. Um, Her education and research and consultation focuses on quality of life and palliative care and transformational leadership. She was a principal investigator on many studies with over 3.5 Five million dollars in external funding, and her work has been disseminated through more than a hundred publications and five hundred professional presentations. Her resume must be really long. Mm-hmm. Um, Shirley is um, a member of the National Association of Social Workers as a pioneer, and she's been recognized with fellowships by the Association of Oncology Social Work, the California Healthcare Foundation, and the National Academies of Practice. And she was among the first to receive an interprofessional master's of arts in health research in palliative care from Lancaster University in Great Britain. And one of her also crowning achievements, um, which because those of us who have been editors know, um, she is the co-editor of the Oxford Textbook of Palliative Social Work and the second edition is due out. So welcome, Shirley. Thank you. So um, what we have done and what we are doing for our PhD students and for the world is um, really thinking about where we've come from and they've had that and now we're looking at where we're going to. And so we're really wanting you to kind of tell us about yourself and you have to include one fact entertaining or otherwise that most people don't know about you. Well, for those who have followed all of Lynn's uh, amazing podcasts to date, they will know about me, um, that I am an equine enthusiast. And I think there's so much we can learn from being outdoors and especially outdoors around horses. So that's my favorite thing. Um, And in terms of who I am, again, uh, thank you for those kind words. Um, But I'm an oncology and palliative care social worker with a background clinically in doing program planning Um, And then that morphed into doing research. And of course that morphs into education. And so I'm uh, fortunate now to be in a role of a consultant and able to pull all those threads together and uh, share uh, my passion and enthusiasm for all things palliative care with anybody who will sit still enough to listen. Well, I'm sort of thinking about the image for me about being a social worker to the horse. So if I guess if you could be a horse whisperer, you could probably be a person whisperer. So tell us a little bit about um, uh, more about what you're doing now and what do you love? Because we can already see your passion in your face. (laughs) I have that right across my forehead. Um, I think what I love best about palliative care is its uh, collaborative team approach. And so as a social worker, you know, we're dipped in that secret sauce of systems thinking and contextualizing the the 
individual or the circumstances or the situation. And so trying to understand again, um, as you can imagine, when I, I started a thousand years ago, you hear things like, you know, go see the liver in 206. And I, you just from an early age realized that there was more than just the liver in room 206. And it was important to see the whole person. And more than that, to see the, the family that surrounded that person. And more than that, to see the community that surrounds the family of that whole person. So I think what I like best about uh, palliative care is it always sees the whole person. It sees that that person in context or in the environment. And that opens up doors for social determinants of health. It opens up doors for looking at quality um, quality of life issues. Uh, you know, we have many of the same friends, Connie. And so, you know, thinking in terms of, of nurses or social workers or pharmacists or our chaplain buddies, or, you know, of course, our doctors and our, and our uh, therapists of all kind, you know, if we can put all of these different heads together, we have a much better chance of being able to address the multidimensional aspects of suffering. And okay. so- if I could jump in. No, 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 no. Yes, please. I just wanted to point out that Shirley is the reason our course is titled person-centered care instead of patient-centered care, building on your dialogue there. So I'm sorry, go back to where you were. Well, and I was, I will say that what's also important is just yesterday, um, the Future of Nursing 2020 to 2030 report, um, which was a pathway to health equity was released. But Shirley, you made me think about um, it's funny what you remember from a presentation. The most important statement yesterday for me amongst the about four was the new thing that they are promoting, which is just awesome to me, is that it's patient-centered, family-centered, and community-centered. We haven't pulled them in before like that. And so their focus is on obviously moving out of the hospital into the community. But I thought, well, the social workers are gonna love that because it is about the circles of care. Um, Absolutely. And again, like you say, that, that palliative care, I think, has led the way in that. You know, we've been able to look at this more holistically and to think, and, I, and again, thank you, Lynn, for um, noting that, that difference in, in terms of semantics, because again, words matter so much, right? So being able to say person versus patient, recognizing that a person is so much more than just their interface with the medical system um, and being able to have that broader lens. I think is, is so important. So those are the things that, um, again, any um, opportunity that I have to play with healthcare systems that are uh, looking at how to um, improve communication or look at how to integrate advanced care planning or how to help the social workers to be more um, uh, effective advocates for the, the patients that they see or helping the other healthcare professionals to um, be a little bit more of that broader lens um, those are the, the things I'm excited to be doing at this point. Well, and I think um, most of also the people who are watching this should know that you have been, had a big role at California Healthcare Foundation in doing some of their work. And so, you know, when we want our students to understand, it's, it's a, actually kind of like a, um, uh, kind of like a test case, right? Because you have a state that's mandated palliative care that has money into it. And so you guys can try all these models and you have the California Healthcare Foundation supporting that. And so that's been really amazing because people can learn from what you're doing. They may not be able to do the same thing because they don't have the state same mandates or the um, money behind it. But I think that, you know, that work that you've been doing is also really important. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I think, um, again, it is, it is absolutely 
um, a blessing to look back on a, a career and be able to see how this, the circles of influence have, have um, gotten broader. Um, and, you know, I was, uh, again, when you start, or when I started at least, um, you know, I was so delighted if I could make a difference for the person in room 206, you know, if, if there was some, you know, resource I could connect them with or some, um, you know, moment of presence that, that could be a balm, you know, that was, that was gratifying. But, you know, pretty early on, there was the, the desire, if I could, you know, to be more influential for more folks, right? Because you see the need and you see how desperate we need to change healthcare, um, which is why I applaud all of you who are the students listening to this, because yay, we need to reform this, uh, transform this, you know, not reform, transform. Um, so uh, being able to think about how do we do program planning in, in an institution? How do we create systems that are going to, you know, have less people falling through the gaps? Because when I hear the word equity, as you were mentioning earlier for the, the nursing conference, um, and the goals of moving forward, we are so clear that we have not done equity in healthcare. It's so broken. Um, so then you think, okay, well, how can we expand beyond just the institution? What can we do in a broader way? And as you say, the CHCF, the California Healthcare uh, Foundation, is looking at how can we, within a state, make a difference? And that state then can become a model for how can the country make a difference? And as you noted, I've been uh, blessed to be able to travel some internationally and to be able to be involved with um, people that are looking at how as a country can we make a difference. So, you know, I think that that's, um, that's what's so exciting is that we have these different pilots or different models that are out there. And if we can build on those, so SB 1004 um, is the uh, bill that was passed in California that says if you're going to provide Medi-Cal, you have to be able to provide palliative care. Like how cool is that? And our Medi-Cal is other people's Medicaid, but for all the folks that would otherwise not have access to that kind of a team approach to care, suddenly that door opens. And it really is an exciting um, time to be uh, able to uh, look at how can we influence policy in a way that again, might be able to make a difference in the lives of a, a certain population of folks, but to have that even um, perhaps, you know, be a model that others can learn and, and tweak, you know, because again, it's not perfect, um, turns out, but it's not perfect, but there are things that others can do that will help to make it better in whatever next state does whatever. And I think of, of all the good things that came from uh, Massachusetts and from your state's pilot work that becomes the Affordable Care Act, which becomes, again, a policy that has worldwide implications at this point. You know, other countries and other places um, see something that works, can grab that and can model it for themselves. So it is an exciting time to be alive. Really remind me how old that bill is in California. Oh, I thought you were gonna, how old are you? No, no, that's <laughs> never polite to ask. Uh, how old is the bill? Is it three years old? Question. I, I, I have lost all track of time. Uh, COVID, I'm gonna use as my example or my reasoning, um, but I didn't know time before. Uh, but relatively recent, um, what, maybe 2016? Does that sound right? Maybe, no, probably, probably later than that. Um, okay. Well, yes. I was just asking you because I was thinking about what's happened in four years. And so you've been able to do these models and going forward. Um, so when you think about, you know, the neat work that you all have been able to do and to be sort of this um, incubator, you know, what do you think are some of our challenges that we're facing um, in the future and kind of what keeps you up at night? Um, lots keep me up at night for sure. <laughs> 
um, we've got to get that drip fixed in the on the roof. Um, but no, uh, in terms of, of challenges, they are many. And I'm going to go back to we need to transform healthcare. I think our system of I mean, this how many hours did you say this was? Our system of healthcare is so very broken that it's tied into a person's employment, for example. You know that it's not a human right. Again, you're talking to a social worker, so I believe healthcare is a human right. Just by definition of of birth, you have um, hopefully uh, the right to access uh, quality health care and to have kitties that will jump in front of you when you're being interviewed. Um, it's important, I think, for people to have um, uh, that, 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 again, that health care not be based on whether your parents have a good job that has benefits or whether, again, a certain color of your skin or amount of melatonin that you might have. You know, those are um, whether you speak English, whether you're of a certain age, you know, those, those kinds of um, disparities are unfortunately a, a big part of what keeps me up. And so being able to think of how could we make healthcare more, for, I really believe the IHI, you notice I had talked in fragments, um, I, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement has a wonderful um, goal that they talk about called the triple aim, and that's to do better care for flying class. Um, to do better care for more people and to have uh, do all of that at less cost. Um, and uh, other folks have wisely said that that's not enough. We need to have the quadrupling and that puts the joy back into uh, the provision of care. And I think that, that that is our goal, right? To be able to provide better care for more people, more equitably, um, and to be able to do that in a way that lowers uh, moral distress um, and helps people to feel good about <laughs> feel good about the care that they provide. Um, and I think that until we are able to literally prioritize um, healthcare as a right, and that quality of life matters, and that we need to be able to not have an assembly line of care. Again, another of the things that bothers me is that when we treat the liver in 206, then you know that we say, okay, well that you know, that person has breast cancer. This is how we treat breast cancer. And boom, you're on a conveyor belt and you get what you get because that's how we do breast cancer. And I love the idea of standardized, uh, I love the idea of having standards of care. So that's a good thing. But when we standardize care to the degree that we lose sight of the, the person who happens to have the breast cancer, um, well, then I think we've not done a service. So being able to customize service to be able to have care that is more, gosh, um, that is more, um, it's hard to not be distracted, uh, to have care that is more customized and nuanced and individualized, um, that is person-centered, family-focused, culturally congruent, to have care that, um, to have shared goals of care, to have conversations that, that really look at what matters to this person from a cultural and spiritual and existential place? What are their values and beliefs and preferences? If we can't, if we aren't able with all the resources of the United States to provide that kind of care across the board for everyone, again, regardless of their uh, insurance status, or again, any of those other factors, you know, I, I, it, is, um, it is very sad because we have the, this enormous amount of money that's going into a system that is not providing us with the kind of quality outcomes that I'm sure you guys are gonna be learning about. Um, we have currently this enormous amount of spending 
and we don't compare to other places. You know, we don't have the quality of life and we don't have the quantity of life that you would expect for that kind of a per person um, expenditure. So again, I think we just need to rethink the whole little system. Um, we need different ways of doing reimbursement. We need different policies. We need a whole different mechanism for how do we, how do we look at what is a, what should be the minimal standards of practice and what should be the um, expectations that we get for the, the amount of money that we spend. I think we need to just re rethink all of that. Well, it's an interesting thing you say because um, I, you may be aware, I mean, certainly the World Health Association so, um, organization says that, you know, palliative care is a human right and, you know, it comes out of healthcare. And, and so when you look at what they're trying to do of implementing palliative care in pediatrics, in uh, primary care, um, and you're looking at their methods and they're, you know, talking about developed countries and, and developing countries, it is an interesting model to think about because I think you've said a couple things that I think in the future we are all talking about. And I have just been writing about um, trying to define social determinants of health. And there are like six or seven definitions. That's great. I think the challenge is that it was funny because somebody corrected me and said, you're wrong. And I'm like, well, no, it depends on what your lens is, right? And so how do we help in palliative care people decide what lens? And then I think, you know, where social work comes in, um, you all have a skill and it's so innate. But when you talk about standardization, one of the things that we do need to do is that we need to help other team members be able to assess for social determinants of health. And we have no tools that are systematically evidence-based. So that's a challenge for the future of saying, we keep talking about this and how do we do this? And you can also imagine just what you said about reimbursement as palliative care, we pride ourselves on having the time to think, do things that other people don't have, right? So you can imagine that okay, they don't want to spend the time. So we get these patients. And so we are going to have to do some of that work of the social determinants. And we still haven't figured out a model where people understand the complexity of what we do if you look at the WRVU value or if you're looking at some of that. And so we're going to be even more complex. And yet, you know, I know from my own practice, um, when I write a consult note, People aren't necessarily always looking at my recommendations. They're looking at what I've, I've found out in my cultural and social history that is affecting the decisions that are being made, right? Because, I mean, Lynn will disagree with this, but I think there's something to be said that there, there's a lot of us that can do pain and symptom management. And I could send you to several websites and say, here's how you do this. I'll walk you through it, right? That hopefully we're gonna have a science about. But this other part, when we get to the personal part, becomes more qualitative and, and sort of like standardization of a quality metric. Do you know what I mean? Does well, that make sense? It does. And, and to your point and you know, to um, all the good people that are putting all of their heads together to figure out how do, we, how do we have quality standards? What should that look like? How do we measure X and Y? I think that therein is one of the reasons that social work or chaplaincy and, and to some degree, I think nursing as well, why we are often kind of incorporated into the bed rate um, because you know we don't know what to do with those good folks. On some level, we know we need them and we know that something magical and mystical happens when we have them 
and something doesn't happen always when we don't. Um, and yet exactly what is, what is the secret sauce? You know, I, I think of the Tamil study and I think of your good work as being part of that, but, you know, being able to discern what was in the syringe, as they like to say, um, you know, what was it that made palliative care so effective? You know, what was the alchemy of bringing this group of people together that had this, these enormously um, influential outcomes? And I think therein is part of the rub, right? You know, how is it that, um, how do we measure presence? How do we measure that kind of compassionate listening, um, that, that ability to, to hear the question behind the question that's underneath the question, right? You know, to be able to peel off all those layers, um, to be able to create a trusting environment where the person can say to you, hey, the reason that, um, you know, mama didn't come back was because, you know, she overheard people saying things that made her feel unsafe in your environment. Um, you know, that, that, that this, you know, how do we, how do we measure that? How do we understand those kinds of things? Um, you know, it, it, uh, it is tricky for sure. Um, you know, the, the campaigns to measure what matters uh, are, you know, it have moved forward with the VA. And I know that there's lots of efforts by AHPM and other um, organizations to look at, um, you know, what were the, what was it, uh, the five, each organizational kind of area or discipline had, you know, what are the five things that we should do, you know, to try and, I uh, can't even remember what that was called. Um, but, you know, being, there, there have been lots of different ways that people kind of tried to take a bite out of said elephant. And I don't think that our current system is set up uh, to help us to do that very well. So again, back to the transformation, I think that, that part of what we have to do is um, you know, kind of rethink how we measure those kinds of things. Um, too often they become process measures and not outcome measures. Um, you know, so, and if they are gonna be outcome measures, whose outcome, you know, are we gonna be able to really have person-centered, um, person-reported outcomes? Um, how do we collect those in real time? You know, these are big issues. How do we figure that all out? But I don't think we've always been asking the right questions. And one of our challenges, um, not to get too off uh, course here, and again, feel free to edit. Um, but one of the, the challenges is our electronic health record. You know, when you say that you write something and you know the part that they read, when most social workers write something, we know they don't read any part. You know, and that breaks our hearts. Don't do that, people. Um, you know, we, we really do want folks to read what we write. We want there to be uh, this sharing of communication back and forth. Um, and that doesn't happen currently. The healthcare medical record is designed for billing purposes. It's designed to maximize that. And then it morphed into this other thing. But again, it wasn't designed to be this communication tool the way that it currently is being used. So that is another part of what needs to you know, have an overhaul. We need to rethink and, and, and start afresh. If one of our uh, you know, amoebas from uh, Mars were to land on our, our lovely planet and walk around and try and understand how we do and why we do and what we do in healthcare in the United States, they would have a perplexed and consternated look upon their little amoeba faces because there is no rational way that this makes any sense at all. You know, you, when you try to figure it out, you see how piecemeal it is. And, and I'm so excited that you're going to have people exposed to the different um, historical backgrounds of palliative care from the different disciplines. But you'll see how, you know, we morphed this from hospice and we took this from over here and we took that from over there and we pieced it together. 
and it sort of kind of works for some people some of the time if you have enough resources. Um, but it, it clearly is a very cumbersome system. And again, not one that provides um, care in the way that again, our patients and families deserve, nor in the way that again, would give us um, the best quality of life. And our quality of life matters. So back to the medical record, you know, we tend to have our conversations, if you were the patient and I was the doctor, and I'd be typing into, and so what was that kind of use it? Oh, and uh-huh. You know, that is the opposite of what is going to produce a sense of relationship and a sense of trust and a sense of rapport with the provider. Um, the provider is literally following the prompts and the, the cues and the shortcuts of the, you know, and the, and the required, you know, uh, metrics from the, the dashboard of the medical record and not again being able to be nuanced um, to the needs of that person that's in front of them, or in this case, behind them. Um, so we need, we need to do that differently. It's another of the aspects of moral distress that leads us to having way too many of our brethren and sisterin um, that are burned out, that have, um, that are at enormous risk for uh, suicide, homicide, divorce, uh, anxiety, depression, uh, you know, moral distress, again, on every level. You know, we talked to people in COVID, oh my gosh, you, we saw the rates of that just enormously high. Um, again, clearly we need to be better. Just well, can I ask, if the system is broken, is it irrevocable? And if we're not really giving, providing equity in healthcare, and we're really not doing a good job with person-centered care, if it was the universe according to Shirley, what would be one or two corrective steps you would recommend immediately? Uh, well, again, I, and thank you for asking, no one ever does ask what I think we should do to fix the world. Um, so I think palliative care would become synonymous with healthcare. Um, that's one of the steps that I would take. So you couldn't be a healthcare provider of any discipline if you didn't know those core principles and apply them and, and integrate them into your practice. So for example, you might be asking, what would that look like? So I couldn't be a doctor of any variant of any kind if I wasn't able to communicate um, compassionately and competently with uh, patients and families that looked and acted and sounded differently than I did. If I couldn't meet that bar, and again, how would I measure that? I, you know, devil's in the details. But, but nonetheless, if I couldn't meet that bar, I couldn't be a doctor. Um, if I wasn't able, if I wasn't committed um, to be an advocate, I couldn't be in healthcare. One of the uh, things that's so interesting to me is when we look historically, and I know I'm supposed to be looking forward, but when we look historically, because it, it influences our forward, and um, the people that were against um, Social Security and Medicare and even the hospice benefit was the AMA, interestingly enough, right? You know, how is it that, that we have been able to dissect and fragment healthcare the way that we have, you know, the, this um, interesting uh, separation of mind and body and spirit. You know, when, you know, again, we kind of are a package. Back to my social work lens, I see the world as systemically intertwined. So I would want us, I would not allow us, in fact, I would, I would be an autocrat, um, but I would, I would not allow us to be able to do that kind of segregation. So I wouldn't be able to opt out 
of uh, paying attention to the spiritual and existential and social concerns of the people that we serve. I, you know, I think that, that that ability to be, oh, I don't do that. You know, I don't want any social worker that I ever interact with to be, oh, pain management, I don't do that. You know, it's like, no, yes, I, I, don't, I don't change the medications. I don't titrate the drugs. I don't, you know, but I sure as heck better be able to do a pain assessment. I sure as heck ought to be able to know when I should call 911 for, you know, the, the doc and nurse on duty and say, hello, um, I think we have a concern here. I sure as heck ought to be able to know how to help the person to access the medications that they need and where their friendly pharmacist who carries the right drug is going to be. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's this palliative care has this a beautiful synergy that I would want incorporated into all of the professions. I think that would go a really long way. Um, to, and again, I think the world is better when we integrate versus segregate. Um, so you can probably tell my political leanings. Um, but given that, um, I would want us to have, um, I'd want my dentist to do palliative care. Not because I think he's going to drill so deep that I'm at end of life, but because I'd want him to be paying attention to my fears and my anxieties and my desire to have good quality of life. And that means to be able to chew and to eat and to swallow and to, and to have all the parts work as well as they can, right? Because um, improved quality of life and improved function are two things that palliative care cares about. But doesn't every discipline care about those two things? Or shouldn't every discipline care about those two things? So again, if I were king um, or queen, um, I would definitely want all of the folks to go through Lynn's program. I would want every, <laughs> she smiles at that. Um, I would want everyone to have those core um, uh, clinical skills, uh, the primary principles of palliative care incorporated into their practice so that they saw that, it, that they couldn't do this in a vacuum. That, that again, the fragmentation of healthcare is I think where the devil lies. Um, we need to be able to see how this is all interconnected. We've been caring for my mother-in-law with dementia for a zillion years at this point, or so it feels. And in that process, you know, we can see, so again, both from my professional world, but also from my personal place as a care provider, um, it, is, it is so clear how, again, we fragment the family and how we talk to or about the patient um, you know, separately from the impact of what's going on for everyone else that's in that household. Um, and the people that are again important, but are just outside that household. So all of, all of my both personal and then my professional experiences just underscore how incredibly useful palliative care is and how incredibly valuable it would be if we adopted those principles, and again, outside of even healthcare, I think it would be the solution to the problems in the Middle East and what's going on in the Senate and a whole lot of other places, if we could see how we need to be on the same side. You know, in theory, what are those unifying goals that we have? And if we could all be person-centered, if we all had that true north, boy, am I on a roll. If we all had that, that perspective and we could be rowing together, you know, I think, you know, we could solve an awful lot of the world's problems. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to ask a question a little bit about, um, so one of the things that I see a challenge is, is you've said a couple of things. One, this part about um, non-physicians being part of a bed rate. Um, I know you said that, and when I, you, 
when you said it, it kind of hit me as a gut, right? Because there's something about that that means that we are invisible, right? We're part of a bed rate. Um, I think the second part is kind of thinking a little bit for social work, but I think for all and, you know, for pharmacy and nursing and all that is like this whole issue of scope of practice, right? Because from state to state, it differs and, and people are kept down. And I, where I work right now, one of the things that, um, I won't say tragedy, but does break my heart when I see very talented social workers who are diminished to the role, I shouldn't say it that way, who are not used to their full scope of practice to look at a bigger situation, but are really truly about discharge planning, getting the patient out, not even the coordination, just getting the patient out. And that just feels, um, <sighs> It's like such a gap, right? That and that, like, what are we going to do for the future so that that doesn't happen? Because I think hospitals say, "Oh, we're going to save money. We're going to slot these people into that, whether that's part of the bed rate or not, right?" And then what happens is that, like you've said, we focus on just getting the patient out rather than thinking about what is this patient and family about. Um, is this going to be a good discharge? Is it a discharge that? Um, where they're coping, even though we all know it might not work, we have to let them do it, which I find sometimes people get very paternalistic and maternalistic and say, they can't do that. And like, yeah, they can. And they're going to have to do this and fail. And then the next time they'll be able to listen to us. Or um, what happens is they, I look at this plan and I'm like, what are we doing? And I question it. And then everybody's like, kill the messenger, me. Oh, palliative care, you're so bad. You stopped us from discharging that. And I'm like, well, I'm trying to stop them from being readmitted, right? So our, our goals are totally dis So just think about a little bit of that with, you know, when you think about when we're looking to the future and we're thinking about social work and we're sort of thinking about this integration, what does that kind of bring up for you? Well, so a couple of things, but one is, back to what's broken and how can we fix it? What's broken is we have not only disincentivized the things that we say we want, but we have misaligned our incentives so dramatically and so draconiously, I don't know if that's a word, um, that we've resulted in the outcomes that we currently have, right? So every systems, you know, that is in some measure of equilibrium is, is there because things supported being there, right? So the system is getting the results it was designed to get. And that's the part that breaks my heart back to why am I staying up late at night? Because our system is, is designed to keep repeating the same mistakes, right? We're, we are, there's going to be another shooting of another police officer involved shooting of another person who's an unarmed person of color within moments of watching this video, because that's what the system and how do we know that? We look at the results and we can say those results are getting, you know, if they keep repeating, then we have to say that there's a systemic thing going on. So, so our system, our healthcare system is getting the results it's designed to get. And that's why I keep saying, you know, we need to do this differently. So we need to change the incentives. So the current reimbursement system does not pay for the kinds of quality care or the collaboration of care that we're talking about. Um, and so, you know, phrases like a durable discharge comes into play and, and throughput of people, you know, as if again, this, a lot of the transactional language, a lot of that comes again for a fee for service, this, this very much of, uh, 
a system that's designed to bring in that healthcare can be a for-profit enterprise in the way that it had developed until fairly recently, um, you know, without any other alternative payment models. And that's why they're called alternative because everything was in this system uh, and, and people had been able to tweak the system in such a way that they could maximize dollars in and costs out. And, you know, capitalism has lots of good factors, but maybe isn't the best way to do healthcare in this way. Um, if, if what we want is, again, something where the people who go into healthcare have a desire to make a difference in people's lives, and if patients and families and, uh, again, communities are able to have a voice in, in how this is going to be done. So the challenge, um, the challenge is that, yeah, if, if we're going to not pay differently, if it's part of the bed rate, then it means there is no differentiation between whether there was a good social worker involved or whether a chaplain was there or whether a nurse did a drive-by, you know, or whether the therapist did whatever, um, you know, a physical therapist or occupational therapist, you know, whoever, and those guys get talked and bill. But, but that idea that, that, that a lot of this stuff is the same payment, whether or not it happens, makes all of those good people optional. And therefore, why would you do it, right? If, if you only care about um, and that's back to the incentives not being aligned, that the person who cares about quality and the person who bills over here and the person who does a cost avoidance over there and the person who pays the salary over here, those things aren't seen as part of the package, right? And so, you know, the, the, it's still beyond me. Um, I can only say it's just beyond me. I don't understand how, um, I've never met a physician and I've met a lot, I've never met a physician who was happy with the current system of, of turnaround time, you know, for a clinic visit, you know, the expectation that, that you will have, you know, the, the kind of a 12 minute visit so that you in theory have a three minute documentation and you go right to the next one. So every 15 minutes, right, that you've got somebody that you're seeing. When your schedule is like that, um, there is just dissatisfaction, it seems to me. Um, and so I don't understand, given the, from a social work lens, given what seems to be the, the power and influence of physicians, how we are all don't hold our hands and say, oh no, we won't go, right? How is it that we, as a healthcare field, don't literally just draw a line that says, that's not how you do it. That's not what I signed up for. That's not what I trained for. That's not what I, you know, if we're going to talk about evidence-informed practice, and you notice I didn't say evidence-based, but evidence-informed practice, you know, we wouldn't do it this way. You know, it again is not a rational way to do this. Um, so it is, it is interesting to me that we have abdicated our responsibility as healthcare professionals to allow someone else to decree how often and how much time we should have with whatever person. As a social worker, I, I give our field all kinds of, of grief um, whenever I can, um, that we have accommodated to those kinds of, of expectations. You know, we need to hold at least hands and say, that's not how we do this. You know, then I can't, if, if that's my, if my role is only to get you out of the bed, you know, I didn't get a master's in social work to get you out of the bed. You know, I, that means I'm ignoring the, 
uh, code of ethics that I presumably swore uh, allegiance to. It means I'm not following best practices as uh, set by any of the organi professional organizations I might uh, be involved with. It means I have sold my soul. And again, selling one's soul um, is never a good plan, uh, in my opinion, um, because again, it's related to back to the moral distress and you know the, the feelings of um, enormous grief that go with that, right? Souls are really things you shouldn't sell. So um, I think that, that there is a, a, back to one of the requirements that I would have um, in my reformed healthcare is that, that idea of advocacy and that we would adv advocate for one another, right? And so if I'm part of a, an organization that is getting slashing, you know, uh, the numbers of social workers because they're too expensive and we don't bring in revenue. And so we are, uh, you know, not, uh, we're a negative uh, service in, in some of the language that you'll hear. Um, you know, when one would like to think that the rest of our uh, colleagues would, you know, lock arms with us and would say, no, you know, we're not going to practice in a place that does that. We're not, you know, it's not okay that there's one lone little chaplain for a hospital bed, you know, a hospital with uh, 427 beds. And, you know, we're, we're going to say, no, spiritual care is an important aspect of quality of life. And we have to do this differently. And if we all, again, saw ourselves as part of a team, um, it would seem to me that we would be able to have more influence, but we tend not to, we tend to fragment amongst ourselves. And again, interesting. it's interesting up. to see an autocratic leader campaigning for revolution. I like how you roll, Charlie. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Nothing but contradiction. <laughs> So if you think about that, though, I mean, I think of, um, so we have, you know, students who we're wanting them to think broadly for the future. I mean, what advice are you giving somebody starting in the field and, and what advice, you know, what do they need to be thinking about to help change the future? You've said some things about kind of theoretically, but like, can you think of some specific things that they should be doing? You know, I think by getting a doctor in, in any discipline, in any uh, specialized field, what you've, what you've kind of done is put a, uh, your stake in the sand and you've said, um, I care about, hopefully you've said, I care about this so passionately that I'm going to devote, you know, zillions of hours of effort um, and I'm going to, um, you know, slog through all of the requirements, um, but I'm doing that because, so hopefully my, my good advice is that you're really clear about your personal and your professional motivation because getting a doctor is hard. Um, and so you, you're gonna need something to kind of buck you up. So I, I recommend, um, you know, doing a little deep breathing mantra and, you know, spending some time in, in personal reflection and thinking about a patient story, a, a professional moment of some sort where you knew that if things were different, you'd have had an outcome that would have been so much better. Um, and that you can hold that story in your heart. Um, so when things get tough, you're able to kind of remind yourself of why I'm doing this. And in the same way, um, because as important as that is, I think we need to have a personal motivation as well. And so again, the same thing, you get that deep breath, that moment of real reflection. And you'd say, why am I doing this? What 
what, how can I make a difference, right? The only reason you're doing a doctorate is because you're going to make a difference in the world and God bless you for doing it. Um, so you're going to make a difference in the world and you need to have some motivation for why that you're going to get up in the next day and slog through another, whatever it is. So for myself, um, it's real clear to me. Uh, I have uh, several patients that are kind of right there for me, but, but one of those patients was a person in pain. And I was a good little social worker and I believed my good little team. And they said we were giving her the maximum amount of opioids and we had a ceiling and she had reached it. And oh, well, it's too bad that that's still hurt. We all felt terrible about it. But, you know, I trusted our doc and our team and, and we did the best we could. And here we are. And later I moved into a different place and I had the opportunity to be invited to learn beyond my previously narrow scope and realize that there is no automatic ceiling in opioid use and that indeed there were other things that we could do and her cries still haunt me to this day. So one of the reasons that I've done work in pain and symptom management is because I feel guilt and sadness and a debt to the patients that I didn't provide the best care for and knew that but didn't know what to do and didn't know that it could be part of my scope and when I learned more, hopefully then I could do better, but I hold those patients as part of my motivation. And in the same way, I, am, I have drunk the Kool-Aid that tells me that everyone's mortal. And if that's true, then that means my dear son is mortal and he's the best, he's just the best. And I want him to get the best care. And until I can believe that he is going to get the very best care, no matter where his care is going to be delivered, and no matter, again, hopefully knock on wood, it's zillions of years from now, but at some point when he is, in, when he is on a serious illness, when he has a need to have medical care, I want that medical care to be better than I am confident it would be at this point. So all of that was to say, my advice is to identify why you do what you do, identify why it matters, and then move forward with that. I think the best and most um, useful thing that we can do, I've studied this actually a lot. Um, I think resilience is a really important uh, attribute. And I think we build resilience by doing things that are tough um, and by having a sense of purpose, right? We have to have a sense of meaning in our work and that's the good news about palliative care. Again, answers all of life's problems um, because it is meaningful work. Um, so you get a chance to literally make a difference in people's lives. And um, so in whatever way you can help make the world a better place, you are not only making the world a better place, that's nice, um, that's you know, going to make a difference in patient lives and in other people's lives, but it makes a difference in your life. You know, you're, you're going to feel better at the end of the day when you know that what you did was good, what, what you did was meaningful, what you did could be impactful, what you did had purpose, what you did helped move that mountain, move that rock up the mountain just a, a, a little bit further. Um, it's a big mountain and it's a heavy rock. And so we need to have all of our friends come in. And that's the other good thing about getting a, a doctorate in, in palliative care is you're going to meet the finest people on the planet, the faculty, the, the, your colleagues, your teammates, your, uh, your co-students, uh, your cohort of students, you're going to meet, by definition, the finest people who walk the earth. 
and you're going to have friends from different countries and different time zones and different geographic areas and different disciplines and different different uh, genders and different races and different ethnicities and and all of those different things are going to help you to have some comfort at night when you do go back to bed, um, exhausted from that hard day, um, but satisfied that, that you're part of a team that's on, on the right side of the world, right? If there's a problem, it's so much better. Whether you can fix it or not, it's another whole story, but it's so much better to be on the side that's trying to fix it versus the side that's given up or heaven forbid, the side that is, is uh, making it worse. Um, so, so yeah, I think my, my best advice is to, um, to celebrate the opportunities that, that the program offers, um, to take advantage of those opportunities, um, to learn from others, to, to, um, think outside of, and again, that's why you could do education, right? To broaden that lens, to think outside of your scope and to be able to, um, you know, develop the skills so that you can, you can feel better about the work that you do. Wow, that sounds like a wrap. What do you think, Connie? I do think so. Surely that was awesome. Thank you so much. Well, you're most welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to think these thoughts with you. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.